Cotman. Welcome back to the conversation that the Leaky Cauldron, episode 17, Lucky 17, my favorite number, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, chapters 5 through 10. Back with me are Miss Sarah Miller, bang, 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 and Mr. Wesley Shantz, ready to bring you back to Hogwarts today. Welcome back, you two. Yo, how's it going? It's going well. How are you doing, Sarah? Good, thank you. Good to hear. Good to hear. Well, so we had uh, we had about five chapters this time around. In excess of Flim, Draco's Detour, The Slug Club, Snape Victorious, Half-Blood Prince, House of Gaunt. Uh, for one of a better, more creative starting point, <laughs> do y'all want to start uh, back at the borough and talking about this Flim? What is this Flim? I don't remember any Flim. I remember a Fleur Delacour and some new information about her, but Flim? <laughs> what do y'all um... think about this chapter? Oh gosh, I uh, I'm going back to it now. I mean, the Flem is isn't that Ginny's nickname that she comes up with, or uh, or is that um, something that, that one of the other Weasleys might have invented for her? I, I thought it was Ginny though, right? I do recall her using that term. Yes. Yeah. yeah so it's cool. I mean, these are interesting chapters to read as a chunk. Um, they, you've got the the love potion when we have our first potions class, and then you have the kind of awful story of the the House of Gaunt shortly after that. And so when you go back and look at it again, the um, the excess of phlegm chapter in the light of those two looks a a little more sinister actually, right? Um, that you have this you know kind of Romeo and Juliet type of thing, like maybe not that far. But a situation where Fleur is um, this outsider and all the Weasleys, you know, except Bill, of course, uh, seem to be, like, upset by her presence there. Um, I don't know. Like, that's that's kind of, it's kind of mean, you know, of Ginny to call her that. I, I don't know. But um, on the other hand, she does present a, a real danger, a real threat um, to the stability of the, the the greatest, you know, wizarding family we've seen, basically, right? Yeah, what do you, Sarah, what do you see in the relationship between Molly Weasley and Fleur and Fleur and Ginny? Is there a jealousy going on, that aspect going on? Is there a, they actually don't think she's a right fit for Bill and this really is a quick decision thing going on. Is she just so overly critical and annoying that anybody would act like this? What did you think? I mean, I'm not really sure I see her as a threat in the same way. Or I'm not really sure what you mean by that, Wes. Um, I, so on the one hand, um, I can, I can understand how there would be a little bit of jealousy at, you know, Mrs. Weasley and Ginny are, you know, the two incredibly strong women in this very male household. And, you know, you add a third and um, it has the potential to upset the balance that they've, they've like cultivated and figured out. Um, I think what, what I can see Ginny being jealous of is like, um, yeah, and this is a foolish fear because very obviously her mother doesn't prefer Fleur to Ginny. But, you know, what if what if your mom starts to like the girl 
that your brother marries more than she likes you, right? I can see that being sort of maybe like a deep-seated issue. Um, there's not a lot of text to support that. I think Fleur is just annoying, quite frankly. Um, and, uh, you know, Ginny is, right, remember, she's like in her fifth year. She's grown up around uh, um, some pretty strong personalities, and she seems to have taken after Fred and George in many ways. Um, she's an aggressive Quidditch player, and I think her reaction to this is like just plain old immature. Um, I, I think Flem or Fleur is, is annoying, but Ginny's not behaving in a way that is like the mature way to react to somebody who is annoying. I think she's also like all girls would be, um, I think a little bit sensitive to the fact that um, the boys just kind of like snap to around her. And um, there's like a, a hierarchy, like, well, what's so special about her? She's annoying. She's got a fun, funny accent. She can't do anything. She's not helpful around the house. All the, the only reason you like her is because she's pretty. And um, I, I can understand somebody like Ginny being a little angry about that, even though we know that Ginny herself is quite pretty and that she has other things going on for her, right? She's invited to the slug club because she's, you know, dynamite at this, at, at a certain kind of hex. Bad um, she, yeah, she, she's going to crush her Quidditch trials. Um, you know, she's bright, she's clever, she's sought after. I think, um, that's sort of the vibe that I read, like why um, why she's like annoyed by by uh, Fleur. It's almost not even Fleur's fault, right? It's actually like her annoyance is a kind of the whole circumstance, right? That like, man, just like have like a ten walks in the room and and just there like there go all of the other that's like the male the male agenda the male the male attitude the male gaze like um so all of these things that she's worked really hard to cultivate outside of her appearance you know um like what do they mean right um and that i i think that that definitely relates to um uh Merope gaunt and what we'll learn about her later um ah. you know i think um in these chapters there's just a lot of um, different kinds of romantic um, impulses, right? There's the cute um, uh, Mrs. Weasley and Mr. Weasley. Um, there's what we'll later find out is like pining for someone. There's um, a lot of references to you know, dating. This seems to be, I, I've sort of listened and read ahead, it seems to be like kind of a theme that there's a lot of romance in this book. There's the Amortensia. Um, you know, uh, there's the love potions at the, uh, um, at Fred and George's, um, shop. I think there's a lot of like impulses towards kinds of romance or different kinds of romantic relationships. Um, and I, I don't know if that's sort of how I saw the, the phlegm, um, I think maybe just as a word, it's gross and, would be something that she as you know this perfect little french girl would be like grossed out by and that's kind of why jenny picks it too but um i don't know 
I, I agree with all of that. And I think it's interesting too, that the Weasleys, uh, as beautiful as Flora is, she is a hybrid, uh, which would be looked down upon by purists like the Death Eaters. And um, I think part of the fact that Bill, I, I've been wondering what makes the Weasleys blood traitors exactly. But I, I do think, and maybe you guys can clear this up for me, that Bill's marriage to a half fila would certainly be something that would constitute being a, a traitor, you know, in terms of diluting the blood. And that, so it's interesting because she has this high status because of her beauty. And then Harry's quick to remind us to all of our annoyance that Fleur is actually quite skilled as a wizard too, right? She is the, the Bobatons a champion. And in the book that, you know, this boys and girls, not just a girls school. She, you know, it's like a Hogwarts and she obviously thinks it's better than Hogwarts because she's got that sort of attitude. Um, but I, I think it's also interesting what you light on Sarah talking about how this book does really emphasize Ginny's additional wonderful attributes. And just two things about that is I've certainly found that when I'm identifying with something like my physical strength, or I think I, I like and dressed well or handsome someday, that when somebody walks in who's more handsome or bigger, I definitely revert to thinking in terms of other, uh, other things like, oh, maybe I'm smarter than that well-dressed person, or I must have been spending some time studying while this person did this or that. I definitely uh, sort of like Ginny will, um, will sort of light on my other positive attributes. But I think that's interesting that we get a much more full picture of Ginny because of that, because she's put in this uncomfortable, annoying position. And as you said, usually she is the pretty girl in the room. A lot of guys like her at Hogwarts. And all of a sudden, like you said, this tin shows up and it's like, oh man, I got to look at myself a little differently. Um, I need to highlight some other features of myself because I just can't win in this particular competition. I mean, look at the reaction of Harry and Ron. Harry's defending her. Ron can't even, you know, Ron, Ron can't even keep his mouth closed. Um, but we do find out, yeah, Ginny's an excellent chaser. She's very funny. She sees things in an interesting way. Harry actually longs for her company when he doesn't get it on the Hogwarts Express while he's feeling sort of lonely and taking his lumps again. Uh, we're returning to that theme of Harry gets isolated and, and, and still has moments of being as alone as he was on Privet Drive, you know, when that summer when he didn't get any of his letters, when he has to confront Voldemort with, uh, against Cedric, he's all alone there. He even tries to be all alone at the end of the last book, five, but um, his friends finally sort of force themselves upon him. They say, no, you know, this one we can all do together. But then he faces Voldemort alone again. Um, but uh, we get to see, like, like you were saying, Ginny's a great chaser. She's funny. She can do the bat bogey hacks. She can pull herself up by her own bootstraps. And I, I do think that that's really interesting when you connect it to, and I didn't notice this when I first read it, what is it that Harry smells when he goes by the Amordentia? I think the last thing is the smell of, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get this exact right, but it's something like the shampoo that Ginny uses or her hair smell or something. Um, there's a direct connection made between what uh, Harry smells and the smell Ginny has, which is, uh, I think, again, lighting on or agreeing with the theme you brought up, Sarah, that um, as these books mature, they become more about human relationships. And in particular, the most difficult relationship, which is that between, I think, man and woman and uh, uh, leading towards marriage. Because, well, you know, just to say one thing about marriage, it's like, it's an eternal relationship that is supposed to be guarded by God. And so it's like, an, um, it's like taking an unbreakable vow. And I think uh, part of what these books are trying to show us is just, you know, uh, like we saw with Harry and Cho in their really, really painful date, and then just how they went about 
interacting with each other in the last book, it's not so easy. Uh, that relationship, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of finesse and it takes a lot of learning, I think, and also painful self-reflection. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, so I agree with everything you're saying. And I also think the connection to Merope Gaunt. Uh, one question, do you guys know who in classical mythology Merope is or the most famous is? The name is used several times. I do not. Is she a Gorgon or something? A thing? You would say, isn't, you would, isn't she um, like the adoptive mother of Oedipus? Yes. Yes, she is. Of Corinth. Yes, the the childless adopted mm -hmm. uh, or, or adopted mother of Oedipus. Yes, very much so. She is like the Egyptian princess to Moses, um, and. She, uh, yes, that is, that is her name. And so uh, it's interesting, I was mentioning that to my students. It's like tragedy follows that name, like how tragedy follows Eurydice. That's both Creon's wife who commits suicide and uh, as well as, as you know, Orpheus's wife who dies on their marriage night. But um, I, I really like the connection to like the most beautiful girl and then Merope, who's this eyes pointing in the wrong direction, sort of, uh, you know, really mistreated, and spoken to in nasty ways and betrayed by her brother and you know really berated by her father I, I like that you make that connection that we see just like those two very different sorts of lives and how one can be treated differently uh for whatever reasons they happen to be um in the course of life i, I like that you notice the beauty and the ugliness like that i think um that I mean, I know that this is sort of skipping to the end of the reading assignment that we we did, but um, but the the story of of how um, how Voldemort, well, Tom Riddle Jr. I guess came to be um, that at the very end of that chapter when um, Harry asks why the love potion stopped working and Dumbledore sort of says, you know, I don't know, but like my sense is that she chose to stop giving him the potion right that yes. as in love with him as she was she was convinced that he would by now have fallen in love with her in return um so sad. i just i i just had an enormous amount of pity for this young woman um mm -hmm. a woman who is so i mean i think physically and verbally and emotionally abused by a sociopathic brother and a horrific father and like to me you know what fault is it of hers that she's just traumatized to the point of not being able to manifest her magical abilities right and then maybe also compounded by that is not knowing how to how and when to use them it sounds like she didn't go to school right so like this right. all of these lessons that they're learning at Hogwarts about how and when to use magic, um, how and when to control their emotions, right? And to like maybe learn um, that there are ways in which you can and should use magic and that there are some things that magic cannot and ought not address, right? Like um, they're learning all of these boundaries and it seems like she's just so abused that and like not taught that these boundaries aren't there for her, um, at least not not consciously. Like she's just so swept up, and it seems just so real to me. Like, of course, this is like you said. Of course, this is where um, 
this is where evil is born, right? But this is also a product of human evil, right? This isn't just, like, this is a product of systems that have, like, like, how is it that, that um, uh, the Ministry of Magic doesn't have a way to help people like Moropi, right? Like, they have a way to take her father and her brother away to Azkaban, but what do they do with this girl? And, like, do they not have, like, child protective services within the Ministry of Magic? Like, clearly there are villains in this world. Like, what do you do with their children? Um, and, I mean, we'll learn a little bit about how Dumbledore tries, I guess, to deal with deal with the products of this. Um, but I just, I don't know. It was, this was, that was one chapter where, for me, um, the magic of it, like the wizarding world nature of it was just ancillary. Like this was, this was a real human, just as possible in the muggle world as it is in the non-muggle world to me um, when I read it. It just, it rang of like survivalists out in like the woods of these, in like super, you know, rural places that don't believe in school and like, you know, get off my property or I'll, you know, pump your guts full of lead or, you know, like the, uh, I don't know. It just, it seemed really real. Um, I don't know how, what else you guys thought about that or if you want to go back to Diagon Alley or something like that. No, yeah, I, I kept thinking of uh, like some Huck Finn stuff, you know, his paw. Um, that's the kind of fear yes. that, you know, this, uh, uh, what's his name? Marvolo seems to, um, it, gosh, yeah, he, he's also, um, you asked about this a little bit ago, Alex, I think the, the blood traitor thing, he, yeah. he throws that at, uh, his daughter, his own daughter, right? Like, and, and right. I guess that would be sort of the most, the most forceful sort of use of it, right? To somebody who you are related to, um, I don't remember now if Bellatrix calls Sirius that as well, but it's a similar kind of dynamic anyhow of like, you know, relatives who um, have a falling out and that's where you sort of get the, that's where you get like the Greek style tragedy, right? Um, in, within the family, um, the thing that should have been so great, you know, falling and that's like what makes the fall so great or something like that, right? So, um, but I, I also thought um, that the, the disregard for the ministry was shocking to me. Like yes. that the people have like no conception of the ministry as an authority, right? They, they don't, they don't um, look at it in that way at all. And so it makes me wonder like, you know, how many wizards are there out there that are like this, right? Like, uh, how many sort of are doing their cyclopean thing out there in the, in the hinterlands? Um, and just how much is the ministry even in power? Is it all sort of a self-delusion um, within the magical world? Um, it's, it's almost like as muggles are to the magical world, the magical world is to this larger, older, more cantankerous world of you know people who don't recognize their their authority um it's it's fascinating yeah i think this is one of the most interesting sort of insights into 
the reality of this world that, that has been conjured over six whole books um, that, that we sort of see here. I, I think to, to the marriage point too, I wanted to bring up how, um, you know, Dumbledore never gets married, right? He, he never has an heir of his own. He, uh, he wears a ring though on this crippled hand and it's, it's the ring that Harry notices in the, in the memory. Um, that's, that's pretty bleak. Uh, I just wonder what you guys thought about Dumbledore's um, loneliness, how that's sort of being sketched in little by little. That, yeah, I just have a question to append to after that because I'll have to think on that some, so I might pass that to you, Sarah. But I also wanted to ask just, just dealing with some of the painful moments in here and just a stain with Gaunt uh, for a second. It's just that, what did y'all also think about the fact that you could be abused to such an extent that your powers would be repressed? I totally feel like that's true. And I uh, feel like I have some experience with that sort of thing. But, but also we see differing manifestations of that too. Like Neville also doesn't really fully develop and maybe that's partially because he doesn't have a parent guiding him or also the overly critical um, sort of view of him that his mom takes. He's not his, she's, he's not her son, uh, his Frank. Frank was so, so special and Neville's sort of second rate in her mind. And also with, with Riddle, he, he sort of goes a different way. He doesn't have parents and he's an orphan and he sort of manifests these nasty and powerful powers. Um, and somehow that comes from these gaunts. Um, uh, and then there's, there's Harry who sort of mischievously makes things happen in the name of justice against evil Dudley. Um, but the fact that like <laughs> sort of how, how one is raised or how one's treated in the house can, can make a big difference about how one's powers manifest. And I do see uh, a real tension between the family and the society because, you know, Albus Dumbledore left Harry with mm. this terrible family. That said, the magic of that family, there's something I think being said there that even bad families have a magic that society cannot touch. Um, even in the Gaunt family, which is so terrible, the ministry only intervenes in something significant, uh, even more significant than poor treatment of their child, like when they bleed into the muggle world. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a value judgment of theirs we want to question. Um, but there, there does seem to be, and I think Wes, you were sort of touching on this too, a magic to the family as well. And I think that's also why marriage is so significant and interesting because it is a bringing somebody into the family in a way that's far beyond words, even though you do it by oath. Um, you know, it's like a mixture of the blood in order to produce a child, um, or that's often what is consequent to it. Um, and so, you know, there's just this blood family aspect to that too. And so I see a tension there. I also wanted to ask about people's powers getting changed, but also Dumbledore's loneliness. What did you think about that? Um, Sarah, it is true. He never gets married and there's McGonagall. She's pretty single too. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's like, is it like a wisdom and the God, the father sort of thing? And they're mm. hovering above the face of the deep and that's Hogwarts and its infinite potential or it's lake with its squid in it. Uh, <laughs> um, or what? There are, this is a lot of questions. Wes, can mm -hmm. you ask your mm -hmm. question again? Um, it was about, just if I'm not mistaken, it was about, um, why does Dumbledore, Dumbledore not marry, but 
still wear a ring, particularly the the gaunt ring um, on his like ill hand. Is that was that your question? Yes. Yeah. Basically, it seems like that ring is drawing attention to mm-hmm. his singleness here. Like it's, and mm. he's you know such a warm and loving figure, but what he's all alone. I don't get it. It's so. I know we've talked or at least Alex, you've mentioned it a number of times, the, the, the archetype of God the Father in Dumbledore and seeing that a lot. And yes. I, I think a couple discussions ago, I mentioned that uh, I think at the end of the fifth book that what we're going to start to see like a weakened Dumbledore uh, in terms of his, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, our last discussion, um, in terms of his um, you know, increasing imminence um, Yes. with Harry, like his in- increasing, I want, I dare I say, intimacy, um, you know, inviting Harry into his office, into his thoughts, into his memories. Um, he exposed his, you know, himself as vulnerable by saying that he loved Harry. I think we're going to start to see him occupy a much more fatherly role. But yeah, like, um, I think it reminds me of um, one of the arguments. I'm not saying I buy this argument, by the way, but it's one of the arguments that's made for um, priests not having a family, that to do well, Hmm. and I don't know if this is a, this is not one of the theologically uh, rooted arguments, at least not as far as I can tell, but just this, almost from a practical standpoint, that to be a good shepherd, um, you need to attend to all of the sheep. Um, To be a good pastor means to be attentive to the flock. Um, And that, like, there was there's some question I think as to how well you can do that when you have your own family to attend to, right? Like you said, like a, a tension between you know serving the good of the family, like a, um, almost placing the family prior to the state, right? Like Antigone style, right. like uh, that that um, that that's the unit, and um, families make up the state, but families prior. Um, and especially when, when you consider that family is sort of this like biological impulse to basically like, you know, create a copy of yourself and have your name live on your blood. Like there are like evolutionary impulses to procreation, to family. Right. Um, and that, um, to, to give that up right? Or to resist that urge, that, that, you know, programmed desire for a copy of yourself, for a legacy uh, that's, you know, embodied, um, that's not just a legacy of ideas or, you know, inventions or whatever. Um, but that, that, that is a real sacrifice. Um, and then it also maybe for Dumbledore, I don't know so much about Minerva McGonagall, but for Dumbledore, maybe it's the thing that allows him to um, to do the other good work that will form a legacy for him, I guess. Um, I think the thing about the, the ring is interesting just because um, I think I've been to enough weddings where you hear like this <laughs> ring is a symbol of my love and affection or my love and fidelity, right? Like that the ring is supposed to be symbolic of this thing, this, this thing this vow that you make, this oath of fidelity, of um, of commitment, of um, uh, you know, 
affection. Um, and that it's supposed to, I think, remind the world, but also remind you as you wear it of, say, a, a, an oath that you've taken, sacrifices that you have either made in the past, are currently making, or intend to, or are willing to make in the future. To me, like Dumbledore choosing to wear the gaunt ring, I don't know that for today we've we've read all the way through um, where this is sort of revealed, but I, I do get the sense that he has a some sense of, Dumbledore has some sense of responsibility, misplaced or not, um, for what has happened um, or what happens to Tom Riddle. Like, on the one hand, totally not his fault. Tom Riddle makes a series of poor choices of his own accord. And we can already see when we meet him as a kid, that kid's a little messed up to begin with, right? But like... <laughs> All right, and, and I know we haven't gotten there yet, but like that, that kid's, you know, not normal. Um, but there is all, he also is a part of his life. And I can see there being a kind of like choosing to wear this ring that's a representation of a sacrifice that he's made, um, a commitment that he has, has made maybe to the world, but also a reminder of one's own fragility, a reminder of one's own weakness. Um, you know, being that it's on his like cursed hands, I don't know. That that seems like I can see why he wears it, right? It reminds him of maybe um, that he's not as sharp or not as sharp, not as quick as he once was, but that this is the life, the legacy that he has chosen, um, and that like as tempting as it might be to say, oh, I don't have all the answers, I'm going to die soon anyway. Um, that like he has to use whatever time he has left on this earth to ensure to like shore up that legacy i guess that's sort of how i read it um, I, I, I don't remember I, I don't remember what your other question was alex honestly i agree i i want to i want to just uh address that because i think it's good i i do note that it's it's the ring is on his wand arm which is his right arm so it's not on his left hand but it's interesting because it mixes a few symbols so if if we take dumbledore as in some way embodying the god the Ar the father archetype then part of that archetype related to, say, the Horus and Osiris myth uh, and the Lion King is that, that that protective father has to die at some point. And I think that's, that's part of what you see in the New Testament as well, that that which protects you from knowledge of your own vulnerability and keeps you within its own house must die so that you can yourself become that figure and embody it and become the next father generation uh, as hero. Harry's going to have to learn from this figure because now he's shown his vulnerability, the mortality of that symbol in the world insofar as mortals have to embody it because Dumbledore is a mortal after all, even if uh, you see him as, even if I see him as embodying the archetype of God the Father, but um, uh, if Harry's going to take that next step into adulthood, which I think is a heroic step, he's going to have to recognize that Dumbledore can't solve all the problems. It's in the fountain of all wisdom. Obviously, he has a tremendous amount. He's cleverer than most others, he permits himself to say, and he can do things with a wand, we learned uh, in the last book, that uh, have never been seen by a doddering old examiner who's ostensibly seen everything. <laughs> and um, uh, so Harry's got to become that. 
Um, I see, I do see it as part yeah. of that. I also think it's really interesting, Sarah, how you, you mentioned sort of the idea of the priesthood uh, tending to the whole flock. And, you know, even just being a teacher, I feel, uh, I feel very much like that. And I just note that these teachers are very much like, like um, parents to these kids. They literally live with them and then they join together in this blood-like way. It's, it's some middle ground, this fraternity, sorority, house system. Um, and, uh, and, and they live with them for, you know, like seven years, months at a time. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um, they, you don't see a lot of them having relationships either outside of the, the, the household. And, you know, it, it, just knowing some data and knowing the, the, the beat it's, it can be hard for teachers to maintain that balance because it's not as clear cut as perhaps with other professions, you know, where the oh, family yeah. and not family line exactly is. And um, so it's almost, it's almost like what Harry needs to start learning is um, how to provide that now rather than to be the, simply the recipient of that. And that, that's, that's part of why I think he, he sees uh, Dumbledore both as uh, vulnerable and potentially not always acting in the right way, in the most moral or ethical way, making mistakes. Um, and will, you know, eventually even have to see, see, uh, you know, something far more significant, even than, or, if I, or, yeah. I was just gonna say, if I could just jump in, I think the place where he gets to learn some of this, like the lab is the Quidditch pitch. Um, um, you know, like being the captain of the team will involve yeah. um, making certain decisions in terms of who gets to be on your team. But also, um, like once that, I know we didn't read the uh, uh, Felix Felicia uh, chapter yet, but the, like the strategies that Harry starts to employ are not that different from the strategies that Dumbledore employs, right? Like um, uh, maybe, and we can talk about this when we when we read it. But it just it's if he's looking at Dumbledore as kind of the the, the model that he's going to have to start to emulate. Um, and as one decreases, the other one increases. Um, right. Yeah, like that, it's interesting to like draw some kind of lo much lower stakes parallels. I think the other thing that um, I don't remember this from the book uh, or from the movie, but um, that struck me about um, this, their first lesson, right. Um, was, when Dumbledore says something to the effect of like, now we're venturing, I could be very wrong about all of this, right? Like um, yes. we're venturing into a world where like the answers are a little less clear and I could be very wrong, but I'm just going to give you all of these memories. And it reminded me of two things. One, um, how important history is um, and understanding yes. history uh I didn't do the history segment at St. John's because of the number of pages I would have had to read. Um, but it, it made me think like, I never really understood why that was a segment unto itself. Um, but how important it is to say, understanding a lot of the other things. Um, but the other thing that it reminded, it, it reminded me of is like Dumbledore is so good that his instincts that he's not sure of are right right like right. he's so 
like he is he is to the point of wisdom of of understanding of you know, his instincts have been honed for so long in so many ways like he's he's got all of the skills he's got tons of experience and knowledge right that he can sort of fill in the blank in the right direction in a way that like filling in that blank you know like creating something that's like being a jazz musician but like that you know that's like uh there's this thing in um in dubliners james joyce talks about it he he one of his first images is of the gnomon where like which is like a piece on a on a sundial and um it's like the l-shaped piece and the the gnomon is the part of the parallelogram that's been cut out i think and that from looking at the, the 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 shape that's been cut into, you can, um, if you look the right way, you can fill in the shape, but you have to know kind of sort of what you're looking for. Um, that he, he, he knows enough and he looks enough, he, he looks in the right ways that he, he's getting at the right, the right things, I guess. That's, that to me is just remarkable. Um, I'm I'm sure I will never be smart enough to be able to do that. That's just it's that's magic to me. Well, we can all try together. It's like he's Socrates in the Timaeus giving a likely account of what's happening, or Newton on meteors. If you get that really nice edition, I I can't uh, I can picture the book, but I can't bring the publisher to mind that has uh, the extended introduction that was popular when we were at St. John's. It uh, it talks about what conclusions of Newton's he speculated on that have now been proved true and there are several and part of them are his theory on comets which you know it's hard to even see that yeah uh, what what do you think about this Dumbledore Harry dynamic Wes and we, we maybe we don't need to return to the powers question or maybe it'll just come up at some point oh yeah I mean that that does seem to be kind of at the bottom of it though right like if Dumbledore in some sense messed up with Tom Riddle, he seems to have really gotten it right with Harry in, in most respects, because he does um, place Harry within a family which, while the, it's not, they're not obviously particularly loving or something, they are the sort of family who makes Harry who he is, right? And, and that's a pretty remarkable person. Um, it's it's that that contrast again with uh, with Diddykins, right? Like, at least you haven't made him into that that soft creature sitting between the two of you, right? Like, uh, <laughs> on the couch, um, which is it's so the contrasts I think are becoming so um, like prevalent here. Um, they're they're brought out in such relief. Um, it, it's it's really excellent, I think to think then about um, these characters that we've sort of grown to, to know so well um, by, by kind of juxtaposing them in different ways um, by seeing, in this case, Harry growing into the stature of the chosen one, right? Um, kind of gives us a better sense than in hindsight of, of all of the developments up to that point and, and what a hand Dumbledore had in all of that, right? He in some way is kind of the author of Harry Potter. Um, 
on the other hand, so is Voldemort, right? By, by his right. deciding that that was the one that the prophecy must have spoken about, right? So, yeah, the the sense of like this this kind of informal education going on throughout the whole series and reaching back into history um, is brought out really nicely here to 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 be in tension with the formal education, which is getting so intense. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing spells without speaking now, which we've been really interested in, I think, like the, the role of speech and language and magic. Um, so now Snape's like, well, okay, just do it without saying anything. <laughs> go, go try it, all right? Um, and, uh, and then, let's see, the other thing is that the, the potions, which are so awesome. Uh, such a great teaching strategy, I think, to to sort of dangle that prize in front of the kids on the first day. Like, let's see who's like really, really ready to shine in this class. Um, you get like you, but the press. It's prize. a controlled substance, right? He's like giving them a drug <laughs> if you do really well. <laughs> like, what a cool teacher! <laughs> he does tell teacher, them to use it. Teacher's right. gonna he get does. fired. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, we, as we know with these new teachers, they often are pretty come and go. And he, he's sort of like the, you know, the stereotypical, like, old, charismatic teacher who doesn't care anymore. He's just going to do mm. what he does. But I think it's also a very Slytherin thing that he's doing, too, right? It's like he gives it to him with a wink and a nod. And he's like, all right, old boy, have at it. Have a good old time. And so perhaps there is something perfidious in it, but I, I do agree that that's a good strategy to dangle a prize in front of the students and that, you know, getting them to feel that sense of awe just to add, that will then add to their earnestness. And just to add to your informal education part, mm. this is, Harry performs better than ever at potions by learning from this so-called half-blood prince who could be, I don't know, Harry, Voldemort mm. at this point, or somebody else we don't know, but somebody who's, definitely very gifted at potions and dark arts it sounds like and um it's also interesting just because that is so like our education like at st john's we would always be sort of doing extra reading groups or trying to meet with tutors extra trying to get additional informal uh, education and and what's interesting too is just that how much that contrasts contrasts with what umbridge tried to produce at at uh, hogwarts that the teachers need to stay within very strict boundaries and that that seems to get the opposite effect from what you might want yeah yeah i i agree like yeah umbridge is mentioned here she's she's clearly still there as the kind of extreme um yeah and i like you know how slughorn he he the prize is partly the potion but again yeah like you say the prize is also partly like his admiration. He he makes such a mm -hmm. tool of it uh, and wields it so, you know, artfully to um, bedazzle everyone and, you know, pit them against one another. And so when he like gathers them into his compartment and, you know, feeds them uh, and, and puffs up their egos in various ways. Um, I, yeah, I found that so, so interesting. Like that, <laughs> that that's his, um, his, his entree into the world of Hogwarts, right, is to immediately gather his slug club together and start, like, figuring out and poking and prodding, like, who who do I need to, like, attach myself to here? 
Um, I like also what? the uh, the way that Harry, you know, goes off and um, you know, sort sort of eavesdrops um, a number of times so far in this book uh, is it's a weird sense in which his like childishness is, is still hanging on and he really gets burned for it in, in the train. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah. I was, I was just going to say that, um, the entire time while I was reading the chapter on the slug club, I just couldn't stop thinking of Slughorn as like this street, like this mountainous, like overwhelmingly fat man. Right? Like, <laughs> he is like a walrus, right? <laughs> Yes, I I keep thinking of that one U.S. president whose name I never can remember, but who was super super fat. Uh, two two tubs put together. I think it was Taft. Yeah. I could be wrong. Well, I think but. I think Taft Taft sounds right. But I just anyways, our conversation from last week definitely affected how I read this. I think one thing that struck me as funny, um, not funny, but like interesting. Um, when we're talking about like blood and half blood and blood trader, right? Um, and Harry's so open to using the book, and it becomes a book, like it becomes like bed bedside reading, you know? Like he's reading a textbook. Right. At some point, Ron makes a joke about it, right? Like that that behavior is obscene in anybody besides Hermione. <laughs> but like, um, but that. Uh, it is kind of cutting a corner, right? Uh, to get something that you want. And to me, that's like a very Slytherin move, right? Um, he's not playing by the same rules as everybody else. And he's totally okay with that. I mean, he tries to eventually like help Ron, but I mean, Hermione wants to play by the, play by the rules, right? To compete on a fair, on, on a, um, a fair playing field. And I just think it's like an interesting touch point between Gryffindor and Slytherin, these two houses that are like often set as polar opposites. But this is a moment where like the impulse to win and the impulse to win at all costs or whatever it takes, maybe to step on other people to get there. Um, like I think you could see it in either house, right? Like Slughorn using competition um, to breed excellence is a highly effective classroom strategy, right? Um, to provide like a little carrot at the end and maybe the carrot is just my my words of praise but in this case it's also like a little treat um and gosh like that appeals to the impulse for games right the, the competitive spirit the boldness of Gryffindor as well as the ambition of of Slytherin I just I thought that was super interesting the other thing I will say is I um I think it's interesting how um, even though Slughorn is uh, so obsessed with um, uh, like famous people and having connections and all that, he's also willing to start inviting people who don't have the name or, but who have like some demonstrated talent, right? Like um, he's not completely, he, he does still sort of see the world as like, you're either in or you're out, you're like cool or you're not cool, you're like invited or you're on the outside looking in, but that door is not um, purely about pure blood. Uh, it's not only, like he's, he's genuinely impressed by Hermione, even though 
she is a muggle born, right? I thought that made me hate him or dislike him a little less. I don't know. He does seem to give people a fair shake. Wes, did you did you see Harry's following those directions in a Slytherin sort of light, or did you did you take it like Ron did that he also followed directions, just other directions? He took a risk, and it panned out. Yeah, it's interesting how Ron stands up for Harry here because he could very easily, you know, be jealous, like we've seen him in the past, or you know, even when we see uh, Hermione like thank Harry for calling her the smartest one in the class or whatever, like Ron gets a little jealous there. It seems like his locus of jealousy is is narrowed or something like that, right? Um, hmm. But instead he he really um, stands up for Harry there and, you know, is, is pretty much super duper loyal so far. Uh, and I, I think the way that the book um, is like a hindrance at first to Harry, it's like he's trying to read but there's all this scribbling all over it, right? <laughs> um, that that I found so interesting. Like, yeah, he he really is trying to do it without following the instructions that have been overlaid. But he, it's like he can't. It's like it's it's too, um, it's too in the way or something. And uh, and he's like, he really wants that dang that dang prize too. So, gosh, yeah, I don't know. It is a bit Slytherinish, but um, but it's also like fate has clearly thrown this in his path and if if nothing else he's he's a creature of fate at this point right he's a he's the chosen one hmm. that's that's the thing that he seems to be really asked to struggle with here and like sort of make sense of however he can so yeah everyone keeps looking at him you know it's like we're back to you know year one all over again and again, because of a brush with Voldemort. Uh, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, there's there's one thing I just wanted to ask about before we sign off today, which is what did you all think about Snape becoming the Defense Against the Dark Arts um, uh, teacher and it also being referred to as DADA, like Dumbledore's Army at one point. And, and just also about, like you were saying earlier, Wes, the fact that they now have to use their minds alone and it's it's funny because if you remember the original speech snape gives in the year one he talks about there not being silly wand waving and speaking in his class and that you sort of have to brew and so it's interesting that again he he makes this subject more cerebral than it otherwise would be he can get into those higher realms that some people can't he's so gifted and i think we have been seeing a lot of Snape's gifts recently, um, you know, like we were talking about with his capacity for legitimacy and occlumency, but um, also that he can guide them into this, whereas Dumbledore is now guiding Harry into more speculative realms, again, harder to th see things. So now is um, Snape doing that with, um, with Harry um, and, and the kids and, um, even even McGonagall too. Just to add to that, now Harry said now he d understands only half of what she says. Um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think I had another question that I wanted to add to that. But uh, yeah, why don't I just end on that because I've already said so much. Well, I I think the the way that Snape 
talks about the dark arts is really interesting and how I think it's Hermione mm. about that that's the way that Harry talks about, you know, battling Voldemort, right? These kind of like ultimate challenges mm -hmm. that push the limits of what's possible and maybe of what's worth doing or, or should be done, right? In, in any kind of moral or like ethical sense. So I found that connection really, really interesting, um, particularly then when the next thing that happens is like we see uh, him basically attack Harry Potter um, because I, I don't know, he wants to like show off, I guess. That, that again, it's like there's that, that childish side to Snape. Um, and I, I think that there's something kind of curious about how those, those two elements, right, the, the, ultimate, the ultimate limits of like pushing knowledge, but also this like kind of reversion, those two things do seem to go hand in hand. And, and it's like, as far as you can push outward, you're also like pushing back inward to, to figure out like, what makes you tick, you know, like what mm. makes you these dumb things, but you do them. And it's like, that's who you are in some sense. Um, it, it's great. Yeah, I, I love that little confrontation. Detention. I, yeah, I yeah. actually saw, yeah, go on, Sarah. Oh no, I was just gonna say that, that, uh, that moment when Hermione points out, like, actually I thought she thought he sounded a lot like you. And, and Harry's like horrified at the <laughs> prospect Right, he's like offended that I think he doesn't talk to her for the rest of the day. Is that right? <laughs> um, I guess I'm I might be mixing things up because I'm a little bit further ahead. But the like he's offended that she would equate in any way those two, right? And yet, like um, I mean, Wes, you mentioned the contrasts that are starting to sort of emerge. I'm also sort of starting to see like some parallels, right? Like. Uh, between characters that you didn't think that I guess I wouldn't necessarily put them on parallel tracks, but Harry's not the only one who's been chosen for something, right? He's like a chosen for a mission. And um, the way that he and Draco mm -hmm. talk about it is different, right? Um, uh, and certainly their missions are different, but they're kind of, in, they both really want that, you know, the liquid luck. Um, they both uh, need help. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think that that's also starting to emerge, that, like, some of the characters are um, complexified, right, um, by just a little tiny glimpse into their humanity, right? You'd think, like, oh, my God, the mother of Voldemort, what a witch she's got to be, no pun intended, right? But, like, she's just a victim right um who's she's just uh, she's just sad um and yeah i think that that's sort of what i also see starting to emerge as much as i you start to really tease out like these important um foils i think they also they also start to kind of move almost inexorably on this track together towards one another you know yeah yeah, it's like things are finally getting serious and definitely that tension and that parallel between Draco and Harry as like a negative and positive chosen ones is there. And also, like you were saying, things are more complex and that 
Snape is also a chosen one too, right? Both by Voldemort mm-hmm. and by and by Albus Dumbledore. And it's sort of an open question who he truly um, serves. You know, I, I mean, Harry suspects him, but we know that that's sort of self-serving. And that seems to be also what delegitimizes his legitimate observations about the weird behavior of Draco. But also people think he has potentially a prejudiced perspective towards him because they just dislike each other so much. So he would want to see that. Um, but yeah, okay, well, you all... Uh, so you said you're ahead, Sarah, and we're we're not going to be able to do this until I think um, two weeks from now. So do we want to read uh, a healthy chunk for this upcoming bit? Over... I'm sorry. What's what's next week? Did I miss that? Next week is well. I'll be in Fiji. I'm go. I have Easter break. Oh damn! Yeah, that sounds awesome. I know okay. it's going to be the first time I've ever gone somewhere where the water is clear and man I, I, I'm, I'm, like a, I'm gonna come back a new man um, um and, uh, speaking yeah. of speaking of next week Wes I saw that I missed that maybe you sent a message over the slack channel I'm sorry I did not get that notification um but maybe we should we should chat about what we're gonna do <laughs> yeah cool. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll have to do that before Alex goes to Fiji because we need your input too, Alex. Like, okay, what absolutely. We, what we do it that their panel. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can yeah, enjoy we, your time. Yeah. No, yeah, I wanna. I wanna, I wanna help. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I'm not making it up there. But well, you know, we just have to keep doing more of these, and I'll, I'll definitely be there. Um, because I yeah, I want to do a live show, and I want to see y'all. I think that'd be great. Um as good as this is. It'd be funny to see um, while we talk. Yeah, it would. Uh, question, totally unrelated. Did you guys see the picture of the black hole? Yes. Yeah. From the, how, how freaking cool is that? That's so yeah. cool. That is some profound coolness I, right there. I, I agree in concept, but I thought it was funny. Barstool Sports posted an article that said it was the worst that like new black hole scene worst photo of all time (laughs) as cool as as cool as it is like it's definitely not like an awesome high resolution picture i know everybody will hate on me for that um i I mean i was amazed i was amazed first but then i laughed at that joke a second Um, (laughs) but i posted a picture of that on uh on the history of western thought too with a nietzsche quote uh, about if you stare in the abyss stare at the abyss yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, but there's yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. Best if you fight against monsters not to become a monster. Uh, maybe that's, that's what we're going to see with Harry here. And yeah, so many interesting parallels. I can't wait to talk more about this in a couple of weeks and to talk about the upcoming conference. And so which chapter do we want to go to? Do we want to go through Christmas 16? Do we want a sluggish memory 17? I'm, I'm, I can really do as much as possible. I think I'm going to be listening to a lot of this on the plane. Yeah, I, I maybe is that the next memory that we get the sluggish memory? Maybe we should end on that one, since we it's, ended on the gut it's memory. Not, it's not the next memory, but it is the third memory, oh. or it's the third memory chapter. So uh, yeah, let's go through chapter seventeen, the sluggish okay. memory. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well. Bottoms up, y'all. Cheers.
later. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. Safe travels.